This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. All right, well, welcome everybody uh, to this session. Um, oh, there's one up front, yeah. Um, this is, a, this is actually a template for a book that I'm writing, uh, Five Habits of Highly Effective Christian Men. Uh, it's from, uh, taken from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 to 14. You could have that open because that's going to be our focus as we get into it. Um, it I, I wanted women to come as well, women to be very welcome here. Uh, I'm going to obviously zone in on, on, on men, but obviously... Uh, if you're a woman here, uh, married to a man, you've got to know what biblical manhood looks like to encourage and help your husband towards that. You might be the mother of uh, little boys or young men. You want to be shaping them in that direction, even as your husband will, will take the lead. And if you're a single lady, you know, you've got to know what to look for uh, in, a, in, a, in a man of God. Um, and so... And then conversely, men, you've got to know what a biblical woman looks like. So there's teaching for, for both here. Um, five habits of highly effective Christian men. Let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, um, as we uh, come to this subject, even as we come to your word, I pray that in an age where uh, there is so much confusion about what it is to be a man, uh, you would teach us and shape us and mold us and raise up men to be honorable, Christ-like sacrificial men who take initiative and protect and provide uh, for women and children uh, appropriately so. And I pray that you would do this, uh, even beginning so in this room today, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you know, but uh, I used to play professional football way back in the 1990s and uh, 2000s. And um, uh, people often ask me uh, what I miss about playing professional football. And uh, I was I had a pretty long career. And and so I felt blessed and I didn't miss out. You know, I didn't have any major injuries. So I had a, a long career. But I said, there's two things I do miss. I said, the first is being super fit. And do you know what that's like? <laughs> Some of you are like, I can't even remember that. Super fit. You know, you you, you work hard, you, you stretch your body, you go to bed, you're aching, you, you wake up the next morning, you feel like you've got a new body. It's just like you're ready to go again. And it's not the case now. I think a lot of us are praying for our resurrection bodies, you know, sometimes because it's the aches and pains. But it's a great feeling to be super fit. The other thing I say I miss is being with the guys in the dressing room because there is something about men gathered together playing for a cause that is great and, and that where the risk is high, but the, the reward is marvelous. And, um, and so gathering Christian men together and galvanizing them has been really one of the great... Um, aims of uh, my particular ministry, uh, raising men for the, for the body of Christ. And it is so because one of the great needs of the day is, is men of God. It's one of the great needs of the day. I say this often, if you get the men, you will get the homes, you will get the church, and you will start to get the culture. Because when Adam and Eve sinned by taking the forbidden fruit and fell in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam, where are you? Genesis 3, 9. He says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Doesn't matter that Eve sinned first. Adam is held primarily responsible. I mentioned this in my breakout session uh, yesterday. Adam abdicated his responsibility to lead and protect and provide for his wife when the serpent usurped the created order by approaching her and not him. She bit. He was passive. They both fell and creation was fractured. And since then, men have struggled to be men. And manhood in particular is under our, uh, attack in our day, in the culture, but also in the church and the home. The differences between the sexes are being flattened. Husbands are not assuming biblical headship in their marriages. You, you heard uh, Denny Burke speak about that this morning. Fathers have been removed or have removed themselves from a central place in the family. Uh, and young men are not being trained for spiritual warfare anymore uh, because they don't actually have permission from the culture to be men and they don't have role models of manhood. 
Um, you hear a lot spoken about uh, toxic masculinity now, nowadays. M men are being told masculinity is toxic. And I say masculinity is not toxic. Sin is toxic. Mm -hmm. Biblical masculinity is actually the answer to much of the toxicity we see in the culture today. When Paul is thinking uh, about leadership in the church, he, he qualifies it, doesn't he, in 1 Timothy 3 with f fathers who manage their households well. Now, let it be said that some men sinfully abdicate masculine responsibility and some abuse them. OK, we need to we need to say that. But but masculinity itself, defined by the scriptures, defined by God, is good and it is to his glory as his womanhood. So one of the great needs of our day is men of God. Consider Ezekiel 22, verse 30. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them, I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, I have returned their way upon their heads, declared, declares the Lord. That's Ezekiel 22, 31 and, 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 and surrounding. When a, when a city was under siege, the men of the city were needed to breach any gaps in the wall. And Ezekiel is speaking here about a man to to intercede and stand before the people and God's judgment that is coming. So our city, friends, is under siege and God wants men who will lead themselves, their wives, their children and their churches away from the wrath of God and towards the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And how do we do this? J.C. Ryle, some of you may have heard of J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, many years ago, once said this, Habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. Habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it's a sapling. A hundred men cannot root it up when it's a full-grown tree. A child can wade over the River Thames. The River Thames runs through London, yeah, at, at its fountainhead. But the largest ship in the world can float in it when it gets near the sea. And so it is with habits, the older the stronger. Uh, and this is true of good habits as well as bad habits. And what we want to do is to develop habits to make us effective Christian men. So now thinking about the text, uh, Paul's last words to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians contain a note of urgency. Last words are important, aren't they? He's addressed a lot of problems in the church, and now he's specifically addressed the men for their role as they move forward. And he gives us five quickfire imperatives. Uh, they're not to be done just once, but are to be habitual principles of life. They're not options, but they're the inspired apostles' commands. And, and remember, these are, a, these are the words of a man who's been radically changed by Christ and whose manhood's been redeemed for his glory. Just think of where Paul came from and then what Paul became through Christ Jesus. And Paul knows that, that the Christian life is warfare. He talks of fighting the good fight of faith, doesn't he? Against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, so the Christian life is warfare, it's spiritual warfare. And he is stressing here a wartime mindset in these last words to galvanize the church and particularly the men. And the text reads like this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. So five habits for highly effective Christian men. And this is where we'll camp for the rest of our time. Habit number one, watchfulness. Watchfulness. Be watchful, be sober, be awake, develop a vigilance and a spiritual discernment. So you need to make watchfulness a Habit. Firstly, be watchful of Satan. Life is war and you have an enemy. First Peter 5 verse 8. Be sober minded, be watchful, is the phrase. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him and so on. So the devil knows your weaknesses, men. You need to learn his strategies. He's your enemy. You need to know the strategies of the enemy, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He comes in those three avenues all the time at you. You might be a redeemed man in here today, but you are still in the process of sanctification and you cannot afford to drift. 
You cannot afford to drift. A peacetime mentality is exactly what Satan wants. In, in, in soccer, there's a saying that goes, when, when you score a goal, you are at your most vulnerable for a goal conceded against you in the next 10 minutes. Why is that? And you can relate it to, to any sort of team sport. When you start the game, isn't it? You're on the front foot against the opposition. You're head to head and then you score and then it's like, oh, okay. We're 1-0 in, in the lead here. So you relax. You let your guard down. You're not on your toes. You need to be alert. Don't let the lion pounce and devour you because you're not aware of his presence or his tactics. So we need to be watchful of Satan. But we also need to be watchful of ourselves. You need to be watchful of yourself, man. You ought to fear a, a healthy fear that keeps you alert. You need to be aware of uh, the danger of evil influences from Satan and the world outside, but also from within. They are everywhere and they are seductive. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. Interesting that Peter says in 1 Peter 5, When it comes to the devil, resist him. That's interesting, isn't it? Shield of faith, stand up, you resist him. But when it comes to useful lusts, run. Put distance between yourself and this sin. This, this isn't something to be toyed with. But, but notice it's not an aimless panic, but it's a wise fleeing and then a purposeful pursuing. A wise fleeing and a purposeful pursuing. You flee useful pa uh, passions and then pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. Turn away from lust. Turn towards righteousness. Notice what Solomon says to his son about sexual immorality and the forbidden woman. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Notice that. Don't just put distance between yourself and sexual sin. Avoid temptation towards sexual sin. Because the closer you get to her house, the more difficult it is to pull away. You don't wander near that road. You don't linger around those internet sites or inappropriate relationships with women, seeing just how close you can get without sinning. The closer you get, the more the passion will rise and you'll be pulled in before you know it. As a pastor, be pastors in this room, sometimes you speak to a, a courting couple and, and the questions they sometimes ask is, how far could we go physically with it not being sin? And I say, you're asking the wrong question. You should be saying, how best can we glorify God in our courting process? You see, see what they're saying? How, how, how close can we get? How close can we get before it's not seen? You start thinking that way, you're going to be getting so close, you won't be able to pull back and you'll be caught. The lion catches that, the, the, the lazy man. The, the lazy man is not watchful for Satan's schemes. And so he wanders blindly into temptation. He wanders near that house. You know, I often say this, laziness is in fact the manure in which sexual immorality grows. It's the manure in which sexual immorality grows. The lazy man wants an easy buck. Financial immorality grows in it as well. The lazy man is unruly. He's actually insubordinate. He doesn't respond to authority. He lacks self-control. In fact, isn't that the first thing Paul tells Titus to exhort the young men towards? Urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Titus 2, verse 6. Because the self-controlled man, you see, is watchful over himself. His life and doctrine match. And I think that's been some of the themes of this uh, conference, if you've been listening to the different talks, is, is uh, conference on ethics, is that life and doctrine must match. I mean, we, I don't know if any of you were in um, Alexander Strauss' uh, one on lying. It was quite convicting. You know, we say we don't lie, but then you catch yourself, you know, just, oh, we're not quite telling the truth here properly. I want to be increasingly so a man of uh, integrity, okay? So you need to be watchful over yourself. Watchful for the devil, watchful over yourself, but also watchful over others. As a man, especially women, and particularly wives and children, so watchfulness has that sense of protecting and maintaining. We must protect women physically. Um, 
I, I speak to a lot of college uh, men and I go on the campuses and, I, you know, I, I'll say uh, it's, a, it's a kind of illustration someone else used many years ago. But so imagine you're walking one, one of the young ladies across the college campus. And it's nighttime. You're walking her back to the dormitory and a guy jumps out of a, a bush and he's got a knife and he waves it in your, your face. And, you know, he says, I want your watch and I'll take that girl too. And, and in that moment, you know, she is a black belt in karate. You can't punch your way out of a wet paper bag. Ah. It's a phrase we use in England, right? Yeah, it's a wet paper bag. It's easy to punch through, isn't it? But you can't do that. She hits the gym six days a week. You've not seen a gym in six months. In that moment, what are you going to do? You're going to push her out in front of you and say, go on, you take him like that. Because they all laugh, right? Because uh, you know you're no man unless you step out in front of her and, and defend her in that moment. And then when you're on the ground, then she can take it out. But you know, unless, unless you make that, it's because it's written on the DNA of your soul, you know. I would expect any man in my church, uh, if my wife was, was in that situation, she walked out to the car in the car park and she was uh, accosted by someone, I'd expect any man in, that, in my church to defend her. He's not her husband, but it's written on his DNA of his soul. I could tell you that if a gunman comes in that room, and not just because it's full of men mainly, but it would be the men that would be going uh, after that gunman first, not pushing the women out to protect them. It's written on the DNA of your soul to protect uh, a woman. Um, what about if, you know, it's, it's three o'clock in the morning, you hear the sound of breaking glass down in the kitchen, and it's the second time it's happened in, in the last uh, month. Do you elbow your wife awake and say, you go this time, I went last time, because we've got to be equal about these things? <laughs> of course, you go, don't you? You're the protector. Um, so you, you must protect women physically and particularly, obviously, wives and children. It will vary, obviously, with the relationship you have with the woman. It's different with your wife as it is to uh, a sister in the church or with your mother or, or whatever. And so you need wisdom, but, but that's the instinct. You need to be watchful over your wife spiritually. Spiritually, you are her overseer, if you like. Uh, Ephesians 5.25 tells husbands, you are the head of the wife. That's a fact. I think Denny probably brought that out this morning. Uh, and then what does it look like, though? It looks like love. So now act. Sacrifice for her good. Wash her with the word. Ephesians 5, 26. So you need to take a lead in devotions in your house. And you need to pray with your wife. Um, this, is a, this is something when I speak to guys, they're not doing it. Uh, they can sometimes feel overwhelmed, you know, well, I'm not doing this. How can I, how can I even make a start? Well, number one, you don't have to be John MacArthur and, 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 and leader in an amazing Bible study. Uh, this is not, you know, law. You have to do it this way. Do what I do. Um, you need to be in the word yourself uh, regularly. So be in the word yourself. And, and as, as I'm in the word and I've got a particular word for the day, I might be thinking and praying for my wife and I might just take a nugget from that word and just bring it to her in the day. So we're not necessarily sitting down for half an hour, but maybe it's a few minutes in the day where we sit down together, we discuss the word, I'm taking initiative, I'm giving her that little nugget, there's maybe a conversation, a bit of feedback, and you know what she does, Amanda is my wife's name, she'll take that, that nugget that I've, I've given her as I've kind of gone down <laughs> and mined the, the word of God for that and I've brought it up and I've given her that, that nugget, and she'll take that through the day. And it's amazing how she's then applied that in her conversations with other women and how it's actually been a blessing then to other women, just in, by obeying God's pattern. That's just, just a particular thing that we've done. If you're not praying with your wife in any regular sense, and, you know, again, not laying down the law that it's got to be this or it's got to be that long, but in a regular sense praying, what do you do? Well, you make a start. You, you know, you wake up tomorrow morning, you reach over, you take her hand, you, you say, Lord, thank you for a new day, for our marriage. May we honor you with our lives. Amen. That's a start. You've made a start in spiritual leadership. And, and a godly wife will love that. Will love that. She will start to respond to that. Um, and so these are things that we need to be watchful of our wives spiritually, and we need to do certain things. You don't just affirm it. You have to do certain things. You need to know your wife's spiritual needs. Live with your wife in an understanding way, First Peter 3, uh, 7 
Otherwise, your prayers won't be answered. There's a, there's a consequence to not living with your wife in an understanding way. Uh, the, the Greek in that uh, text in 1 Peter 3, 7, it means according to knowledge. Uh, you've got to live with your wife according to knowledge of her as woman, because he refers back to creation as the weaker sex, meaning she is a woman. So you've got to know her frame. She's your particular wife as well. But she is woman, and she is different to man. And so you need to know her needs and you need to know what she needs to grow as a Christian woman. So that doesn't mean being a yes man to your wife. A lot of people hear about servant leadership and men and they think that means saying yes to her. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. No, it isn't. It's about leading her for her good. It's about nourishing her with the word of God that means she might grow into uh, godly womanhood. And sometimes that might mean saying no. Uh, if you're keeping a watch, watchfulness over your wife, you need to know her weak. You need to know her particular strengths, but also her weaknesses. Does your wife struggle to say no to things? And then she's frayed and stretched. Uh, she, it might be even with a, with a good motive that she's got a, a merciful heart, right? So she's, she finds it hard to say no because she wants to help, but also she's, she's got the fear of man there as well. So it might be something you need to sit down with her, talk to her, hey, honey, you know, I know that you love to help people, but is there a little bit in you a fear of man that you... You, you, you struggle to say, no, I, I think you need to, to pull back on this. My wife's very grateful when I sort of t keep a bit of a, a watch over. And when I've said, I think you need to pull back here, and she's done that, it's been a great help to her. But again, this is, this is the part of headship. It's, it's that responsibility to, to watch over your wife, not in, a, not in a domineering way, not in a micromanaging way. She's equal to you, a co-heir to the kingdom, but in a caring way as Christ watches over the church. You see, this was Adam's mistake. He didn't watch over Eve. He, he didn't step in. He didn't say no to Eve. You're getting the word of God wrong. You're, you're engaging with the serpent here. And of course, we all know what happened. This means that you need to know what a biblical woman should look like. And Proverbs 31 is, is written for you, uh, for a king by his mother, about what kind of wife he should find. You've got help in Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, Titus 2. There are many biblical portraits of, of godly women like Sarah and Abigail and Deborah, Esther, Mary. And of course, the many godly women that will be around you in, in your life. And so... You need to study them to, to know what your wife should be in order that you might lead her there, you see. This is an aimless shepherding. This is shepherding your wife to, to, uh, to Christ's likeness and in particularly as a biblical woman, the way that she is to glorify God, particularly in her femininity. So find a wife with the seeds of these qualities. No wife is going to be perfect. No husband is going to be perfect. But the seeds of these qualities and, and encourage these qualities in your wife as you guide her along. You must husband her. You've got to be active. You've got to be like a gardener. A gardener can't just sit there and put his feet up because what's going to happen? Well, the garden won't flourish. Uh, there'll be weeds everywhere. But a good gardener tends to the garden. He, he pulls out the weeds. He fertilizes the soil. He sows seed. So that's going to involve effort for you uh, as a husband. Uh, it will involve casting vision from God's word about your family and the direction that you see it going in. Instruction on God's word, on her life. Even correction from God's word to your wife in the right manner at the right time uh, now and again. You've got to keep the big picture in view for your whole family. Uh, what are your children watching? What are they reading? Who are their friends? Are you taking the lead in bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord so that you not only have husband-led marriages, you have father-led parenting? And then if you have that, and if you take that particular responsibility, you watch your wife flourish. You watch your children grow. <coughs> So if all of this seems daunting, and it might do, as glorious as it is, you know, this is a glorious vision for, for manhood, right? It's, it's substantial. Uh, but you start small and you build. Um, I've given you this example of, of, of praying. Start small and build. Um, another example on family devotions, for instance. Uh, a lot of guys feel a bit intimidated because they're not, be, they're not great readers. That's why this book that I'm writing is going to be about 80 pages. 
because I think you know, guys will read 80 pages. They'll look at a big <laughs> time like that and uh, they get put off. But they're not maybe big readers and they might feel sometimes their wives are more... Uh, theologically well-informed than them. So how do I lead her in devotion? She, she knows the Bible a bit better than me. Well, it's not about competency. It's about God's design. So, so what do you do? Well, an example would be you, maybe you pick a time where you might do a little bit of devotions with the family. Maybe it's, you know, um, 10 minutes before supper or 10 minutes after supper. And, but you've got to have a little bit of a plan. And so you plan, okay, uh, we're going to read a, a psalm a day. Right. Okay. So you've got your psalm. Just start on Psalm one, and uh, you call the family together afterwards. So immediately the children see, oh, Daddy's taking the lead. He's calling us together. That's initiative. That's leadership. You sit down. Um, open up the Bible. You're not particularly good at reading, for instance, and reading publicly the scriptures. But your wife is. So what you say is, oh, darling, would you read this for us? She's happy to read. She's competent at reading the Bible. She reads it out loud. Uh, then uh, you you uh, ask, is there anyone got any questions? And little uh, five-year-old Johnny, he brings up a profoundly difficult theological question <laughs> to stump you because that's what children are making, oh. isn't it? They stump you with amazingly difficult questions. And you're like... Um, well, that's a bit tricky. So if you've got a beard, stroke it, because that means you look a bit wise. And then you go, um, honey, what do you think on that? And she's a bit sharp theologically, and she gives an answer. And then you, you might say, let's say a prayer to finish. Johnny, would you say a little prayer? You've led the whole thing without being the most competent person in the room, right? And that's not an excuse not to press on in publicly reading the scripture or praying. or But it means you can make a start, and you're not making competency the issue. It's about design. And when you start obeying God's design, you start seeing uh, God's blessing um, in, in, in your life. And so that's, uh, that's important. God's men are watchmen. Uh, they protect those in their care from danger by providing for them physically and spiritually. So we've, we've seen the, in this watchfulness, which is a, probably the biggest point I'm making. At the, it'll get a bit shorter as we go on. Um, we've seen being watchful over uh, for the devil, watchful over yourself, watchful over wives and children and women in general. Also watchful over your church. Are you a good churchman? Are you a good churchman? Participating in the life of the church, prayer meetings, member meetings. What a privilege it is to be a member of a, 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 a healthy church. Um, prioritizing, leading your family to church on a Sunday. Not, you know, getting out of bed lazy and the wife's driving everyone forward. But you're the one that's actually getting the kids together or just literally taking some initiative. Are you um, watching out over fellow members in your church? Do you have an eye for others? Uh, looking out for the vulnerable? What about single moms in your church? You know, are you, uh, are you aware of their situations? Are you maybe engaging with their kids a little bit to, to provide some kind of uh, godly masculine example uh, to them in an appropriate way? Are you a generous giver in your church? So being watchful over your church for the thriving of your church. We want men as oaks of righteousness in the church, pillars in the church. And then finally, watchful of, uh, of your community. That could be your neighborhood, uh, your workplace, your school, a sports team. Are you a man of Christian character and integrity that takes a, a sacrifice and an initiative to serve others, a dependable teammate in sports? Uh, are you a merciful employer in the workplace? Are you a conscious, conscientious student or employee working with excellence to glorify God in all you do, ready to tell people the gospel? So habit one, watchfulness of Satan, self, women and children, especially your wife and family, and then your church and community. Habit number two, sure-footedness, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. To, to be sure-footed, you must be a man of the word. You must be reading the word and obeying the word as a habit. The word of God is the solid ground in, on which we build our house. What is it? Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Sure-footed men know God's word and they obey God's word. And I just know it, they obey God's word. Notice even from what Jesus said, it's not just the hearing that makes you sure-footed, it's obedience to what you hear. That is the foundation for sure-footed walking. 
being a man of the word is also the sure-footed man's fighting weapon that keeps him standing in the face of Satan and sin. The word is the sword of the spirit. So we need to know it, men, and we need to memorize it. So when the devil attacks, uh, with, when sinful impulses arise, we can stick them with the sword. That's what we need to do. We need to put up protections around us, of course. We need to know our vulnerabilities and avoid temptation. <laughs> but you will defeat sin by believing the promises of God in his word over the promise of pleasure of sin. It's a superior uh, desire that we have for Christ over the sin. I'll give you an, uh, an example. Um, it's late at night, you've come home, you've, you're tired, it's been a tough day at work, the boss has been on your back, you've had an argument with your wife, she's gone to bed, you'd She's unhappy, you're unhappy, you're sitting there and you just got the computer on and you're flicking around and you know if you just click one button or go to one particular website, you will see something that will give you pleasure and you will enjoy it. Sinful, lustful impulse comes up in your heart, the devil's in your ear, go on, do it. You've already sinned in your heart already. The lust is there. You did it before. Why not do it again? Are you even a Christian? What do you do in that moment? What do you do in that moment? Well, you take out the sword and, and you remember the word. You remember Jesus' promise, I will be with you to the end of the age. I died for you. I died for the sin even that you're about to commit even the impulse that's come up in your heart i've died for that you're mine even as you go in i'm with you i've bled for that i will never leave you nor forsake you and in that moment you turn from that fleeting pleasure that you might experience in that sin to the superior power of a new affection in christ that's how you defeat it i don't want guys and and the same goes for for women but i'm speaking i'm Zoning in on guys. I don't want guys that are going, I'm not watching pornography. I'm not looking that. I really want to, though, but I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it because that's just willpower and stoicism that in the end you will cave. I want guys that, that go, I don't even want that anymore. I don't even desire that anymore. To me, that's, 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 that's ugly. And, and, and I've worked with guys and, and, and I've seen the power of Christ in their lives change them. So, so, you know, if you're toying with it at the moment, if you're in it at the moment, go get, confess it to someone you can trust. If it's your wife, you need to confess it to your wife. I'd, I'd say get, get with an, a, an older man, someone who's got some experience here to walk you through uh, this and, and the superior power of turning away, turning away to Christ will defeat that and you will not desire it anymore. But you've got to be on your toes, of course. There's where the watchfulness comes in because you're, Satan will always be coming at you and there will be desires that, that come up now and again. So, word of God, sure-footedness, keeps you standing firm. Notice the wise and blessed man in Psalm 1. His devotion manifests itself in habitual meditation. On his law, he meditates day and night. Okay, and what's he like? He's like a tree planted and rooted, secure and stable, sure-footed, right? So you need to, to, to take the word and you need to memorize the word. You need to meditate on it. You need to chew on it. The psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So to be a sure-footed man, to, to, to stand firm in the faith, you need to be a man of the word. But you also need a man, to be a man of prayer. Mark 1, 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. When Jesus was at his busiest, so you read the first chapter of Mark, he is, he's bang, 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 and immediately, 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 he's doing this, that, and the other. He's at his most busy, he goes off to pray, to be alone with God. Find this difficult, I find this difficult, I'm, I'm sure we, we find this difficult. This morning was busy for me, I, I struggled, I'll confess, I struggled to pray for very long this morning. Because I put other things in the way, a conversation here, a, an email there. And, and they were good conversations. They were conversations with Christians. I had breakfast with Denny this morning. Good. But I needed to have a conversation with God before that. Um, 
And, and, and so can you be alone with God on your knees before him, praying for your holiness, praying for your wife, praying for your, your wife and, and your children and your church, your nation? Mary, Queen of Scots, allegedly said, I fear the prayers of John Knox, the reformer, more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Well, that's something, isn't it? I think someone heard that. It was an amen. <laughs> a praying man is a weapon in the hands of God. Develop a habit of sure-footedness by being men of the word, but also being men of prayer. So habit one, watchfulness. Habit two, sure-footedness. Habit three, manliness. Manliness. Act like men. Not like women. Not like boys. Not effeminate. Not immature. You hear people say that men must get in touch with their feminine side. I say, what feminine side? There isn't a feminine side to a man. Now, we are to be sensitive we can cry. Jesus wept. Jesus was emotional. He was sensitive. But we are men, not women. We are not effeminate. Now, this isn't, hear me rightly, this is not a call to be macho. It is a call to be mature. Men can be sports guys, artists, businessmen, musicians. It matters not to whether you're a man of God. Maturity matters. David King David, yeah, he, he, he slew Goliath. He, would, he was a shepherd who would have fought off wolves and, and bears, but he wrote poetry and he played the lyre. The musicians in my co uh, congregation love it when I say that. Yes, the arty guys, yes, we're meant to. Well, it's true. We want to get a biblical view of, of manhood, and, and within that, there's, there's, there's scope for men to have different interests and have different personalities, but the, the fundamentals are there. Uh, a maturity. There's a time for fun, but the stakes are too high in this life to be chipper guys. You know, chipper guys, they're light and jovial all the time, jokey jokey with the boys, getting drawn in very easy to crudities of dressing room banter. There's a time for, for, for humor and joking. I, I like uh, a laugh with the best of them. But we need men of manly courage, sober minded, not somber, but, but sober minded. The Old Testament word for glory is kavod. Kavod. It means heavy. So we need weighty men, holy men. We need, and this is a phrase that I, I coin all the time, we need uh, divines, not dudes. You know the old Puritan, the holy men, they were divines. We don't need dudey guys, you know, hip guys that are just, you know, wearing skinny jeans and all of them. Is there any skinny jeans in here? I'm just checking out. But you know what I mean. We need divines, not do. You need to develop what I call a manly gravitas, a, a gravitas about you. There's a holiness. There's a seriousness about God. And, and when you develop that, you watch, you, could, you will draw a godly woman toward you. As you orbit round God, you will draw her to you because you're going to lead her. You're going to orbit round God together. But you've got to have a gravitas. And I've seen young guys develop this gravitas. And, and, and amazingly, then there'll be young single guys. They found a, a godly young girl. A godly young woman comes towards them. Well, they've gone out and asked them, you know, to see them. And it's developed. And, and they've gone on and got married. So we need divines, not dude. Manliness flows from being made a man, being constituted a man. So, so how a man thinks and acts, and this is important, it proceeds from who he is, constituted by God as male, not female. So I made this point, if you were in my session uh, yesterday afternoon and the, and the morning while I did a double on, on it. In Genesis 1.27, we read that God made man male and female in his image, and immediately after, in Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful and multiply. So out of this constituting you male and female, there's a physical function and a sexual union which results in fruitfulness and multiplication. But there's a difference, obviously, between the two that has to come together in the union. So the sexual union, it flows directly out of being created sex, male or female. So, so what you are physically, you're created male, there's a physical body, there's a physical action that flows from that body that's particularly male. And then it's unpacked in chapter 2 with this headship of Adam and, and the helpership of, of, of Eve in correspondence. Manliness also means being a worker. 
Genesis 2, the man's role involved working and keeping, working and keeping, working and keeping, protecting what he has worked for. Before he had a wife, he was to work and maintain Eden. Productive labor is a mark of manliness, to be a worker and to maintain and extend what he builds as he fills and subdues the earth and has dominion over creatures in the earth. She helps him. He takes that courageous lead. So, so you need a... You need a certain uh, manly courage for action to take dominion over your life. Start small. Again, it might be your, just your workspace around you. It might be your, you know, the way that you're just, you, your, your hygiene, the way you're dressing. Uh, are, are you taking dominion or are you just letting it all just go? Are you working and then expanding that? Like Jesus, you set your face towards Jerusalem. Nothing's stopping you on what is God's mission. And so that a man like this does develop that gravitas of manliness that then draws others towards him. He's prepared for action. He's clean. He's not dirty. That doesn't mean to say if you're working in the fields, you know, you're, it's all right to be dirty. I mean, I've probably spent half my life dirty on a football field, right? Mud everywhere. But you know what I mean, a cleanliness. Tidy. Uh, not scruffy in appearance. Uh, uh, you know, this is this is not getting legalistic. This is just like and there's all sorts of different styles of clothes and that. It doesn't matter that. But it's it takes no effort to be scruffy. It takes some effort to just have a bit of cleanliness and a bit of smartness about you, you know, the way that you present yourself. So it, the outside is showing an inner uh, direction that you're moving in. Are you keen to preserve the natural differences between men and women in culturally appropriate ways? Do you understand women? Here's a big one for guys. A lot of young guys, young guys, college guys or you know, 20s, they don't understand a woman. They don't know how to handle a woman, to, to treat a woman. Jesus knew the heart of a woman. He tenderly forgave the woman caught in adultery. He, he studied the heart of the woman at the well. On the cross, he ministers to his mother gives her a, a new son. But part of Jesus' masculinity was to surround himself with a close brand of brothers to spearhead his mission. He led them, traveled with them, ate with them, suffered, experienced joy with them. So surround yourself with godly, mature men. I was in a world of professional football, soccer. It was a brutal, tough world. You can, only, you can imagine the dressing room. You can imagine uh, traveling with the guys and all the stuff that, that surrounded it. And... Um, People that ask me, how did you maintain a Christian walk during that time? It's difficult. Well, by God's grace, and I was like saved at 18, so I'm growing uh, as a Christian. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm different now to, to what I was then. But I, I say uh, three things. I, ha I developed a devotional life fairly early on. I was in a ch local church. And the third thing is I had some solid, godly older men speaking into my life. Do you need that? You need those men. Now, give me a call. Give you, they give you a call. How are you doing? What's going on? Uh, arm around the shoulder, kick up the backside. You know, <laughs> what, whatever you need. But surround yourself with mature, godly men, sober-minded Titus II men that will hold you accountable to God in order to perform like a man. Um, sometimes we teach about manhood. I teach about manhood all the time. Um, but, but you know what? Manhood is caught as much as taught when you surround yourself with uh, godly men that's why you know there needs to be times where men meet together just men now the thing is women are coming into all sorts of what was before men men only spaces right now we we want to be careful that we got the old the old boys club and you know in a in a sense of a, a patriarchalism that you know sees women as lesser but there's time when men need to be together with other men and in those times as christian men we encourage each other towards Christ. We speak to each other man to man. Uh, <coughs> and younger men see the example of older men. And older men are encouraged. You know, if you're an older man, there's so much work for you to do. You might be retired from your, what was your day job, but you don't really retire as a Christian. You've always got something to do. You've got to pour into the next generation. Same for older women to, to younger women. Okay, so, so there, there is that there to, to imprint manhood onto other men. 
as little as 60 years ago, you were a, a boy or a man. There was no in-between. You were treated as a boy till you could prove yourself a man and assume the responsibilities of manhood. Now we live in an age where men don't want responsibility. No gravity, no commitment to marriage, so they put it off. Want the privileges of manhood without the responsibilities. So we want to train men to be manly, to be husbands and fathers by modeling it and teaching it. I've gone over a little bit. Just bear with me for five more minutes if you don't mind. When do you ever hear a young man, 15 year old, say 15 year old young boy, you say, what do you want to be when you, when you grow up, when you grow older? When does that boy ever say, want to go get me a wife, have some children, house and it's not on their radar, is it? Not on their radar. But it was on God's from the beginning, wasn't it? He made the man. He said, here's a job. Here's a wife. Have children. Build a family. Extend the borders of Eden. Singleness is good. Marriage is still the, the majority for, of the norm. But godly singleness can be good. But we're called to be manly men. So you've got to train your kids, your boys, towards being a husband and father. That means modeling it as a husband and father uh, first to so pass on the manly mantle okay so habit one watchfulness habit two sure-footedness habit three manliness i'll move quickly last couple of things habit four strength be strong so you need to develop habitual strength in all circumstances to do that you've got to do the hard things it's because strength develops under pressure you know like muscles under tension you know at the gym you so you take initiative in the home when it's difficult. You take initiative in the church or the workplace. If something needs to change, don't wait for women to do all the work because capable women will do that. Intelligent women will do that. They'll go into the vortex that you lazily leave. So to develop strength, you've got to go towards it. Uh, we don't have time to self-pity, guys, whilst women pick up the slack. Um, but strength, this kind of strength comes from a clear mind set on God's purposes in God's word for manhood and womanhood and the family. Women want stability and strength. They want that to feel secure. And we are created to provide that. Think of a dance like ballroom dancing. A man is, it does the holds, doesn't he? And, and then she is everyone's looking at the beauty of the woman. But he has to be that pillar for her. It's no good if he, she runs at him and he... He collapses and drops her. She's on the floor and he's on the floor. But it's gospel strength we need, right? Remember that. It's gospel strength. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Nevertheless, I worked harder than any of them. Yet it was not I, but the grace of God in me. That's Paul, right? First Corinthians. He is saying that he's been so changed by Christ that Christ strengthens him so much. He is now able to work harder than anyone else for the strength of Christ in him allows him to do it. And what this does is it fuels our sense of responsibility to work and takes risks because the source of motivation and the source of strength is Christ. It's not selfish gain or selfish will. It, so this isn't a talk that says, come on guys, just pull your socks up and be macho. This is a case of realize who you are, men, as new creations in Christ, and the amazing resource you have in Christ as that creation, and now act, act like men, because men of God are men of strength. They don't lift themselves up, they lower themselves down, and they lift others up. Strength is essential for men at war, and the strength we need is supernatural. Habit one, watchfulness. Habit two, sure-footedness. Habit three, manliness. Habit four, strength. And finally, habit five, love. Here is the heart of the matter. Do everything from love for love. First Timothy uh, 1 verse 5, Paul heralds the apostolic goal. The aim of our charge is love. We heard a message last night on love in the main session. Love for God and love for each other. A true man loves God above anything else and has passion for his purposes. So we need to be men so radically transformed by the love of God in the gospel. For God who would send his own son to, to, to die for me, bear my sin on the cross, take the punishment I deserve in my place, rescue a man like me, unrighteous and counted righteousness because of the righteous life of his son lived for me. Destined for hell and now a son and heir. That's the definition of love the gospel love isn't a sentiment it's a compassionate conviction that acts for the good of another that's what jesus did for all who repent of their sins and trust in him and it's knowing that that then fuels us to be better men as we develop that habit of dwelling in god's love for us that's important dwelling god's love for you and then overflow 
towards others. That love is going to make you strong but tender. Without the kind of love that I'm talking about, the, the obedience to the, all of these other things will be fleshly and harsh. But the more we trust Christ, the more we love Christ, the more we'll be lamb-like and lion-hearted, the more we'll be meekness with majesty, the more we'll be tender-hearted with firmness, and that will characterize your manhood. It's the kind of love Paul says, speaks about in Ephesians 5. And so it's called to humility, men. And it's that kind of man the church needs. It might not involve riches and comfort. It will involve sacrifice and suffering. But the reward is infinite and the cause is worthy. God said to Adam, where are you? And the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the perfect man, has answered for you and me. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And do you remember what Pilate said to the crowds? Behold the man in mockery. And yet that is the man, the man, the king who would die for his people, the shepherd who's slain for his sheep, the husband who dies for his bride. And he has taken initiative and he has stood in the gap to suffer our punishment and redeem our masculinity. And so here we've got five habits in God's word to help us develop into highly effective Christian men that he's called us and enabled us to be. As J.C. Ryle has said, oaks of righteousness that will not be moved. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together that we've had, even diving into your word. And I pray for all the men in here that uh, we would be convicted, but also encouraged because of what you've called us to. Uh, we know you will equip us to be. Uh, and I pray that we go from this room uh, ready to be men of God that would uh, serve and protect and provide for those in our care and particularly for women and children. And if we're married men for, for our wives as well. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.